Hi, I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to Born of Wonder. And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. Before books, there were stories. In them was distilled the knowledge each generation wished to pass on to the next. Storytelling was, and is, a form of power. It was time-binding. It linked then to now. Told eloquently, at the right time, to the right listeners, a story shaped the future. Nancy Marie Brown, The Real Valkyrie. Hello and welcome to Born of Wonder. I'm Katie Marquette and on this podcast we explore anything and everything that inspires wonder and awe in the world. Starting today's episode with the otherworldly voice of the singer Ivor Palsdotter. I know I said that wrong. I'm sorry. Ivor. E-I-V-O-R. She is a Faroese singer-songwriter and actress, um, hails from Iceland, which is why I am including her here today. Such an amazing voice. And you think about in a world of auto-tune and so many instruments, like an entire 20-plus band of instruments, layered music, all this sort of stuff. Here we have uh, one woman and a drum, and uh, I'm going to include the YouTube video um, showing where she's she's playing this. It's in this amazing uh, Norwegian countryside. It's uh, really, really incredible, and it's just her with this giant drum singing, and uh, one of the comments uh, on the video says, hearing music like this makes me think there's still magic in the world, and I can relate to that. So today on the podcast, we're going to be talking all about magic. We're going to be talking about elves. Uh, I was joined by uh, the author Nancy Marie Brown. She is the author of numerous nonfiction books, um, including uh, The Real Valkyrie, which I quoted from there in the beginning, Ivory Vikings, The Saga of Gudrid the Far Traveler, Song of the Vikings, The Abacus and the Cross, The Far Traveler, Mendel and the Kitchen, and A Good Horse Has No Color. And most recently, Looking for the Hidden Folk, How Iceland's Elves Can Save the Earth. And that is primarily what we're going to be focusing on today. So I think it was on last episode where I said something like, you know, maybe uh, I should have lived in a city. All these animals, there's so much work, uh, farm life. I don't really know (laughs) if I have a natural gift for it. Um, You know, uh, taking care of two little kids and taking care of... uh, animals and gardens and things like that. It's just too much. Well, you know, fall has come around and uh, I, I've seen the light again. Um, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a country girl for sure. When I, when it's when it's fall, I'm absolutely reminded of that. Winter, I'm reminded of that. I don't mind going out into the tundra iciness because then I get to come back into the fireplace and get a hot cup of tea. And there's something so rewarding about doing hard work outside in the cold, all bundled up. And then you come inside and you cozy up by the fire 
fire. There's nothing better than that. And I got to do, you know, a quintessential fall evening walk last night with the dogs. You know, it was uh, blustery weather. Leaves were blowing. It was chilly. I had on my coat. And uh, the world was magical to me again. It was uh, something about this time of year is just like there's magic again in the world. And it made me think about um, what we're going to be talking about today, about how when you're walking through um, a landscape and different people have different landscapes that really speak to them. Um, in our guest's case, in Nancy's case, it's Iceland, this, the rocky, open, wide expanses with the wind blowing uh, across these sort of just open air uh, fields of Iceland and these mountains that, that they really speak to her. So she's there and she can believe in magic when she's there. And I sometimes feel that way walking around the hills uh, around us here in the Maryland countryside, but I certainly feel it in uh, in the Scottish Highlands, which is sort of like my my heart home. Um, but uh, you know that that there used to be a sense that um, we were walking through a world um, infused with uh, with the grandeur of God, right, uh, or gods in uh, in pagan society, that there was a, a sense of mystery that we didn't quite know what lurked beneath the surface that, um, you know, and there were all these stories, all these um, amazing stories about giants and elves and selkies that that made the landscape truly magical in a real way because these were stories that meant so much to people and they believed them uh, and this is the part that we we grapple with today our rational minds we we don't know sort of how to understand these stories anymore and that's sort of what we're going to be touching on today um and also just the very interesting fact it's it's a headline uh that you'll see a lot because it's catchy and it's interesting is that icelanders believe in elves or they at least believe in the possibility of them in in a real way uh, it's such a part of their culture, this this idea of elves. So what do we make of that? Are these people crazy? What What is this about? Um, to the point that, um, you know, there are elf seers, um, people, they talk to these elves. They um, have advocated to parliament on behalf of the elves to not build roads in certain areas because the elves have homes there. Um, this is real. This is going on. I'm, I'm going to put all the links in the show notes and Nancy and I talk about it a bit as well. But really what I wanted to really get at in this conversation and what I took from Nancy's book, Looking for the Hidden Folk, is that it's it's a good thing to be immersed in our landscapes, to see the natural world as as magical, uh, to, to, to see these stories of folklore and legends and fairy tales, you know, fairy tales that uh, Tolkien and Lewis and all these people loved so much that it, it, it roots you in a place and that it helps you see um, the the wonder uh, of the natural world and and when you when you wonder at something when you're in awe of something when you pay attention to something you really start to love it and that is the way that we can protect and care for the earth in a responsible way and uh, and elf stories can help us do that so that is going to be the conversation today and I hope you enjoy it um as always, you can find me online, bornofwonder.com. Um, definitely head on over to Substack, uh, substack.bornofwonder. 
um, writing away over there. And uh, I was recently on um, my friend Rachel Sherlock's podcast, Risking Enchantment. We chatted over the summer, but um, it just came out uh, this past weekend, um, talking about thin places, about this idea of the um it's a celtic celtic idea in um, celtic spirituality of um that the heaven and earth are only three feet apart and that there are certain places in the world that are especially thin where we can almost touch that other side almost reach through the veil and rachel and i talk all about that uh on her most recent episode and i will put a link to that in the show notes uh rachel's also going to be coming on the podcast on born of wonder pretty soon too so stay tuned for that um i've recommended her podcast before and I will continue to do so, not just the episodes that I'm on. I also did a podcast episode with her about uh, The Godfather, which was a lot of fun. But all her episodes are so great. They're just, she, she is a kindred spirit. So I think that you you all will like it for sure. You'll, you'll, you'll love Risking Enchantment. So um, that's, that's all the, the news I have. Uh, I hope you enjoy this podcast episode. I'm here uh, drinking a Guinness. I'm very underslept and have been very crabby because of that. But um, having just a little time here to revisit uh, these magical stories and uh, the kids are asleep for now. So, <laughs> and I'm having my, you know, my, my stout uh, and the, it's cold outside. So things are good. Things are good. So I hope that things are going well with you and I hope you enjoy this episode with Nancy Marie Brown. Thank you so much for listening. So Nancy, many of us will find a place in the world that just seems to speak to us on a deep level. For me, for me, that's Scotland. That's always been Scotland for me. But for you, it's clearly Iceland. Can you tell us about the first time you visited? Was it love at first visit? What about Iceland specifically um, really just enchanted you? I went to Iceland mostly because I had been studying medieval Icelandic literature, the Icelandic sagas. I had been very interested in fantasy writing from a young age. Tolkien was my favorite writer from probably when I was four years old through through high school. And when I went to college, I wanted to study fantasy writing, and they didn't offer that. So I read Tolkien's biography, and I decided to study what Tolkien studied, which was uh, Icelandic sagas, uh, Norse mythology. And I did that for a couple of years, and I was thinking, well, maybe I want to go to graduate school and do a PhD, and maybe I don't, maybe I just want to be a writer. And I thought, why don't I go to Iceland and see, is this the place that I want to devote my life to? And uh, my husband and I went in 1986 for the first time, and we, we took a bus uh, north from the capital city of Reykjavik to a little town called Stikisholmer. And then we backpacked, we, we hiked four miles down to a farm called Helgafet, or Holy Mountain. And I chose this farm because there's stories about it in the Icelandic sagas from the very first settlement. The, uh, the first people came in the late 800s, and there's uh, several sagas that uh, tell of the people who lived there through the next about 200 years. So I wanted to see this famous you know, historical site. Well, it wasn't really a great hike because um, there'd been an inch of snow that morning. This was June. And um, as I write, I, I reduced this in my journal to rain, bones, sheep dung, mud, some birds, Iceland gulls, snipe, geese low overhead. So that was like a four mile walk. That's all I got out of it. 
probably also the wind. You know, the wind is always present in Iceland. So my, my expectations were kind of going down. Um, we got to the farm, the Holy Mountain, and walked up to the front door, except there were two front doors. This was like a duplex on the farm, and I went to the wrong one. So this old gentleman came to the door, rather formally dressed, and only speaks Icelandic. So I tried to say something to him in Icelandic, and I ended up speaking old Icelandic. So it's like somebody shows up your door and starts quoting Shakespeare at you. And he smiled and he calls for his son who was in the milk house and he doesn't speak English either. So my husband tried tent, child. And the guy says, oh yeah, you can, you can tent here. He says this in Icelandic, we understood. And he points out where we could put up our tent and shows where the, where the walking trails are through the farm and you know, where we can get water and all kinds of things like that. He was just very welcoming, even though we were doing this all in sign language. So we went hiking again in the rain and um, walked around this mountain and the reason it's called holy mountain it's, it's not really a mountain it's more like a hill uh, it's called holy mountain because it, it pops out of this uh, low plain on a peninsula and it's, it's visible from you know many miles away and when you get up on the top you can see the entire bay and all this area but the first settler, his name was Thorolver, um, he decided or he believed that he was going to go into this mountain when he died, that this was going to be his grave mound. And so it was, it was considered such a holy mountain that you had to wash your hands before you went on it. And any person or animal that went on it could not be killed until they came down of their own, own will. And then one time, so, you know, Thorolfer lives here his entire life. One time he's, he goes out fishing in the bay and he kept a very large household. So he had to have a lot of, a lot of food, a lot of fish. So he's out fishing in the bay with his men and they don't show up in the evening. And that night, the shepherd who's still out with the sheep says he saw the whole north face of the hill open up and looking inside, he saw great fires burning. He heard a drinking bout going on amid raucous merriment. And as he listened, trying to catch what they were saying, he heard someone greet the chieftain, Thorstein, the cotbiter, and tell him to take a seat on the bench opposite his father, that was Thorover, the first settler. And then the news comes to the farm the next morning that the chieftain had in fact drowned. So this is a story from the year 884, eight, you know, 900. Mm -hmm. And when we came back to the farm after having hiked all afternoon, whatever, the farmer invited us in for coffee. They had called up the local English teacher to come and talk to us. And we sat down at the coffee table and the farmer started telling me that exact story from the sagas about the hill opening up like doors and the feast hall inside of it. And he says, have you heard that one? You know, so he's speaking Icelandic. There's an English translator there for me, but I recognize this story because I had read it in the sagas. And so this connection that we made over these stories that were a thousand years old about this holy place, this place that has been considered holy for all thousand years. I mean, after Iceland became Christian, there was a monastery set there, and so it was holy in a different way. But this, this connection that we made over these old stories 
located in a place, you know, in the landscape, uh, is something that was was so amazing to me, and is is really the reason that I learned to speak modern Icelandic, so I could talk to him better. Uh, the why I go back every year to to visit them. Um, it's the sense that there are stories in the landscape, and that there's some magic in the landscape as well. So these are the things that bring me back to Iceland. Yeah, and, and like I said, I, I think that maybe Scotland is very similar in that you know, there, like you come to a different hill, and there's a story about a giant who rolled the you know the rock onto the, you know, so it's like the the landscape is just infused with magic. I think, mm-hmm. and it is rightly as you say, I think because of these storytelling traditions that are clearly so very much alive. Uh, meeting you know my modern Icelandic people, the first thing they tell you is a is a story from the sagas that's pretty incredible. Um, So speaking of somebody who's keeping the stories alive, uh, you start your book out with uh, a a great um, immersive story about this woman. She's an elf, an elf seer, and you're going on a walk with her. Can you tell us a bit about this woman, who she is, and what is an elf seer? Well, as far back as I believe the 1500s, we have um, records that say some people in Iceland can see elves and other people cannot. So this has been a long tradition that there is a concept in Iceland that there are people who can see into another dimension and they can see elves or trolls or ogres or mountain giants. I mean, there's different names for the creatures that they see and each person sees them in a different way. So it's it's very hard to say what the elf looks like, all we know is what Rockhilder, the seer, sees. But ever since she was a little girl, she has seen people who live in the rocks. And they look very much like, you know, any any type of human. Some of them may have, you know, slightly pointy ears or green skin. Uh, some of them look like trees. She does, she does see tree elves. Um, but the ones that she talks about most just, just rather look like people and you know maybe wearing different clothes than we might and of all different sizes some of them are small some of them are tall but she gets to know them she talks to them these are her friends and they reach out to her when they are in trouble um she sort of feels like it's it's a you know a vibration it's a it's a dream it's a sensation that she starts hearing them speaking to her and she goes to find, you know, where are you and, and, and what is the problem? Um, in, let's see, I met her in 2016, um, and she had just completed this um, long campaign to try to save a lava field that is a, a beautiful natural site outside of the city of Reykjavik. And it's one of the one of the nice places that you can go and just hike and be out in nature and still be pretty much within the confines of the city. And there was plans to build a road right through this lava field to one of the, the suburbs. Now there's already a road to this suburb, so it wasn't like it was necessary to build this road. And where they were planning to build it went through an area that had always felt sacred to Rockhilder, the elf seer, and to any other Icelanders who are sensitive to these sorts of, of feelings. And there are several living elf seers in Iceland right now. And there was a certain uh, series of lava rock formations. Now, these are 
know, rocks that have come out of a volcano maybe 8,000 years ago and are covered with moss and plants and, you know, there's all kinds of, of birds that live in the lava field. It's a, it's a really beautiful place. So this, this particular lava field was painted many, many times by Iceland's you know, famous painter Kjarval. And if you go into the National Gallery in Iceland, you'll see all kinds of paintings of this particular lava field. And yet they're going to bulldoze it. It's, it's like, this is a beautiful environmental place. It's a nature area. It's a site of inspiration for artists. And yet we want to build a road. So Rockhilder heard voices telling her, you know, from the, the elf community saying, you have to help us. You have to, you have to somehow awake uh, the bureaucracy to what they would lose if you build this road. And so she went to see the place. She'd been there before, but she went back to the place and she walked around and, and saw, you know, the, the sacred area that she calls an elf church and another formation that was a chapel, a small, a smaller sacred area. And she said, if we protect these two, uh, and she's asking the elves, um, will that be enough? And she understood from them that if they had time to move their houses, they could do that. But that these two sacred places really should be protected. So she then wrote a letter to the mayor expressing the point of view of the elves. And as, you know, as bureaucrats do everywhere in the world, at first they just wanted to ignore her. But the news media picked this up. And this story of the elf lobby trying to, you know, protect this, this nature area went viral. And the road commission kept getting phone calls and letters and you know, both from inside Iceland and from outside Iceland saying, you have to do something. And finally they, they said, okay, Rockhilder, where should we put the road? And so between the, the road experts and the elf experts, they figured out an alternate route that would allow some of the, um, the elf church to be preserved where it is, and they would actually pick up the elf chapel, this is a huge rock, and move it so that it would be next to the elf church. And um, they also designed a parking lot and a walking trail and, you know, things that would, would make it seem like they were improving the area, not just destroying it. And um, this, as she calls it, the pact between elves and men was kept and that is how the project was mm -hmm. built um and it really it still is a very beautiful place to go visit and the road is not that objectionable but her point was always can we not live in balance can we not look at what is necessary in this project okay you say it's necessary to build a road from here to there but is it necessary to go through a piece of nature that has so much, uh, so many stories attached to it. You know, so many stories of elves and the and the the sacredness of you know the elf church, but also the artists who were inspired by it, by the the birds who lived there, the plants who lived there, the fact that this is one of the few places you can easily get to from the city where you can be out in nature. So it's it's the sense of balance and harmony and listening to the earth to what um, it can offer us, what we can offer it. 
Yeah, I, I love that story. And I, I'm sure the media did go wild about that, hearing letters coming in about the, the elf lobby. Um, so what I took away too from your book is there's sort of this tension between, because I think a lot of people will say, okay, so this woman is crazy. Like she's crazy. She talks to elves, she's a kind of loony, like tree hugger type lady, um, maybe harmless, but crazy. But there's also then, but then like there's people who would be like, well, she's using this as a metaphor um, for sort of understanding the environment, but I don't really, it sort of seemed like it wasn't really either of those things. Um, it was sort of like this tension between reality. It's just like a different way of understanding reality that maybe is a little more open-minded um, and just, uh, I sort of thought of it in a way as like when you're a child and sort of the imaginary world is very real to you um, in a non-contradictory way. Um, there's a great book called, uh, by Dave, David Thompson about the Irish Selkies, where he talks about them similarly, how it's just sort of like, it's not really about whether or not they're real, but the stories are real. Um, but people, you know, you hear this headline, another headline I'm sure the media loves is that 50%, over 50% of Icelanders say they believe in elves. Uh, first of all, is that statistic true, would you say? And then what do you, what do you make of this tension? Like, are we talking about is this just something that sort of our modern minds just can't really appreciate? Um, I think Tolkien certainly understood how to hold this tension well. Um, and, you know, people like Yeats, uh, Yeats always said he believed in fairies. Um, but uh, our modern minds really resist it. Well, I think the, um, the survey you're referring to was taken in 2006 and in 2007. And the answer that reached 50% was that 50% of the respondents entertained the possibility of their mm -hmm. existence. So this is like asking a question, do you believe in God? Mm -hmm. Do you believe in elves? Um, there are many people who will say no uh, to both of those questions. Uh, there are others who will say, I don't know. I so will, they're sort of elf, I will elf leave, agnostics. Yeah, I will <laughs> leave open the, con the possibility because mm -hmm. in Iceland, this has been part of their culture since the settlement. This has been part of their mm -hmm. culture for a thousand years. So it's very hard to say that all your ancestors were wrong, mm -hmm. that all your ancestors mm -hmm. were loony. Uh, you can find references to you know, elves and to other uh, invisible spirits from you know, pre-Christian days uh, and through the Christian times, they, they seem to be able to live, you know, compatibly together. Modern people mm -hmm. can't see the sacredness in a tree or in a, in a rock. It's because we've been taught not to. Our science, in a lot of ways, teaches us that there is nothing that we cannot uh, understand and nothing that we cannot tame. Mm -hmm. Even if we haven't understood it yet, we can do so. So, you know, one of the chapters that I get into is physics, is gravity. Do we really understand gravity? Do we really understand? And what does it mean to believe in gravity? And I point out that Einstein and Newton's theories do not agree. You can't have them both. They contradict each other. And then as I looked more into modern science, you know, I learned that as you continue in physics, you get into the question of dark matter, that most of the universe is made of something that the scientists call dark matter and dark energy that we cannot 
see, hear, smell, detect in any way, no matter how much money we throw at this question, we have not yet detected dark matter. And yet the theories, the scientific theories of the universe do not hold up unless you understand or that you allow for dark matter to exist. And so my brain is whirling saying, what's the difference between dark matter and elves? What's the difference between, you know, these posited dark creatures of made of dark matter and elves, you know, some other of the, of the, of the modern, you know, very modern scientific theories uh, do not work unless you have multiple universes. So, Okay, multiple universes. We're talking about the elf world and the human world, aren't we? Uh, these are multiple universes. So, you know, a lot of these, what we call modern scientific concepts, sound like very ancient fairy tales when you strip off the language of mathematics or the language of story. You know, it's our way of trying to make sense of the world. It's, you know, applying our, our, memories and in our education to the parts of, of the universe, the parts of the earth that we do not understand and may never understand, mm -hmm. that we can't comprehend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, clearly it's it's our, I guess what I'm, what I'm thinking about with our modern mind is that we have no tolerance for mystery. We have no tolerance for um, allowing for some things that we don't understand. But as you are pointing out, I mean, things like dark matter. I've also been reading about that recently. I'm glad you brought that up. I was thinking of doing an episode about that soon, just because it's so fascinating that this is an area of scientific study that is, it's just, it's just an admission of sort of all the wild, uh, Doctor Who like uh, <laughs> um, realms of imagination uh, that, you know, scientists are studying today. Um, Madeline Langle uh, wrote a great book. Um, one of her nonfiction books mm -hmm. is Walking on Water, and she does a really good job of bringing in scientific concepts and looking at them and saying, like, this is this is a fantasy in the most beautiful way, like, and we're living in it. So I think that's what these elf stories are. Yeah, I, I agree with you that it is in the most beautiful way. Um, I, I would not want to in any way restrict, you know, scientific information and scientific imagination. I think it's a it's a wonderful expression of of humanness. On the other hand, people with that scientific imagination want to restrict the literary imagination or the fairy tale imagination of the people who see elves. So I think we need both. You know, I think we need both to have, you know, the full expression of humanity. Um, I I do relate to uh, Rockhilder the elf seer more as if she is an artist. You know, she, her, her background is in art. You know, her degrees are in art. She is a visual artist as well as a storyteller. But when you, when you can classify a person as either an artist or a scientist, you realize that they do see the world in different ways. And both of those ways are important. And I would say that the elf tradition is very much coming from the idea of, you know, the way the artist sees the world. Mm-hmm. So thinking of these elves that she um, that she sees, um, Icelandic elves, it sounds like they're a bit like Galadriel from uh, from Tolkien. You know, they're sage and wise, beautiful, but also, you know, have an edge to them, potentially dangerous sometimes. 
And uh, I, I know you love Tolkien and Tolkien loved Icelandic stories. He had the Icelandic au pair nanny growing up who told him Icelandic tales. And of course, he loved the Norse sagas. He and C.S. Lewis would discuss those all the time. Um, but can you just tell us a bit more uh, about is, is that first of all, is that accurate to say that sort of that Tolkien's elves probably drew a lot from the Icelandic elf tradition? And then how are if I'm just trying to picture an elf, I'm sure some people are sort of picturing like a leprechaun. Some people are picturing like Tolkien's elves. Like, what are we talking about? Or does it matter? <laughs> if you if you look at the stories and the poems from um, from the oldest times in Iceland, uh, the Icelandic elves are very much like Tolkien's elves. That's that's where Tolkien got this conception, and he really has portrayed them best um, of all the, the modern uh, writers and artists that I know of what the Icelandic uh, elves and nature spirits are like. However, there are a lot of other ones. As I as I as I've said, every elf seer sees a different elf. So what an elf looks like has a lot to do with what you are expecting an elf to look like. And the, the nature spirits that inspire fear or terror often do not show up as you know, human-like creatures or you know, small, cute, elfy kind of creatures. Um, we would be more likely to call them giants or ogres or monsters or trolls. And yet, all of those words that we translate into, you know, trolls and elves are used interchangeably in the Middle Ages in the, in the Icelandic texts. We don't really know what the original words meant, and we don't know how the medieval Icelanders conceived of what those words portrayed, you know, what the creatures looked like. We don't have any paintings. We don't have any drawings. So we don't know really how they saw but you will see an elf and a turn into a troll in the same text. You know, the, the, the person or the being who is, is explained as an elf in one line will be a troll in another line. So it's very hard to say. Um, the one thing that we do know about these beings, well, two things, actually. Um, the first is that they can shapeshift. They can look like whatever they want. And that they are not part of the human world. They do not care about humans. They have their own, I mean, it's, it's like robins or, or ravens or something. Yes, they coexist with humans, but they do not need us. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they will help us. Sometimes they will harm us, but they do not need us. Mm. They are completely separate from our world. They are not something that we have um, created, you know, for our own purposes. They exist out in nature. And the other thing we know certainly about them is that they were worshipped. Uh, there was altars to these beings, you know, throughout uh, the Norse world in the pagan times. They were given um, offerings of food. You would paint butter on a rock in, in one part of Iceland. And they were considered you know, beings that could intercede for you or could help you. You could learn how to farm better. You could learn how to live better on the land. You could learn how to take care of the land better. They reminded you not to take too much when you were out hunting or fishing. Um, they helped you to, you know, 
you know, catch the right species, uh, to stay away from whales if you were, you were in a boat. You know, there was all kinds of things that the, the elves or the, the spirits um, could assist you in or could warn you away from. And those are the stories that are, are often told in Iceland was, you know, someone's experience with an elf that taught them something. Mm-hmm. Right. And that uh, certainly fits into sort of the larger themes of how these elf stories can teach us to understand and protect the natural world. And I also think a really important theme is just this idea of paying attention. You know, um, Mary Oliver described paying attention as an act of devotion. Simone Weil placed it as like one of the most important um, aspects of the spiritual life was just to simply pay attention. Uh, And so many of us, especially in a very distracted modern world, are, you know, we're not paying attention very often. So you write about uh, when you were walking barefoot in your favorite place outside and feeling that wet earth and the intricacies of the ground and uh, just how much that changed your appreciation and understanding of that place. Um, So what have we lost in our very fast paced world and how you can tell us a little bit about that, about that experience of grounding yourself um, and how do these elf story, elf stories ground us also um, making us pay attention. Well, the way um, my friend Rock Hilder Jonstadter, the, the elf seer, explains how to see an elf is that you should find a rock, sit down on it or next to it, and look around, pay attention. You know, is there a breeze? Do you smell anything? Are there any plants growing on the rock or near the rock? Um, are there any insects or, or birds or in our country, mammals, there aren't too many mammals in Iceland that would come by. And then if you sit there long enough and open yourself to the world around you, you might see something out of the corner of your eye that might be an elf coming out to play. But you only see this if you are quiet and still and allowing nature to come into yourself. That's what I've learned from Rock Hilder is to allow yourself to be in nature, to be quiet, to be part of it, to pay attention, as you said, to not just walk through it. So I'm one of these people who takes a walk every day for exercise. Now, what I should not be doing is listening to this podcast while I'm walking. (laughs) Um, You have to just be there. You shouldn't be talking to your walking partner. You shouldn't be taking photographs. You shouldn't be listening to a podcast. You should be looking. You should be feeling the ground underneath your feet. You should be feeling the breeze or the rain or the sunshine, hearing the leaves and the trees and the birds. Wherever you are walking, even if you're in a city, you can see the clouds or the way the sun glints off of you know, the corner of the building or you know a tree that is something that you pass every day on your walk the tree changes every day if you look at it every day you will see differences now there'll be some the way the sun shines on it or the color of the leaves or whether there's an insect you know crawling up the side or you know something that you can notice if you really pay attention and when you do that you start seeing how rich and amazing the world is you open yourself up to wonder and to awe and you become you you feel that you are part of it that it is you know the reason for being is to be part of the earth to be in you know the universe not to just walk through it you know not just pretend that you know it's it's not there and you're going to get everything through your brain 
uh, you have to let your senses open up. Mm -hmm. So um, I just, this is just a personal question, just because I'm curious um, about your love of Icelandic horses. Listeners to this podcast know that I'm an equestrian as well. How did you start riding Icelandic horses? What about them specifically is so interesting? I know they have a very unique gait. Um, and How many just, hours do you have to talk to me? Oh, yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to do another podcast maybe after I read your, your, your book about yeah. Icelandic horses. But horses certainly have, for me, been a bridge for, um, you know, allowing me to be a part of the animal yeah. world and the natural world in a really powerful uh, way. They are very good at that because horses allow you into their world. Uh, mm -hmm. And once you can relate to a horse, you can relate to a lot of different other species because it's a, you have to learn a completely different way of communicating. Uh, you can't mm -hmm. be the aggressor. You can't be you know, loud and forceful. You have to work with the animal or they will just run mm -hmm. from you. Um, Absolutely. I first met Icelandic horses, of course, when I went to Iceland for the first time. And there were some places that I wanted to see that were uh, in the sagas. And when I you know, told my, my new Icelandic friends uh, about this, they said, oh, the best way to get there is on horseback. And I had not ridden very much at all. So then I told them that I, I, you know, I took a few riding lessons when I was a teenager. And so this was mm -hmm. in my late twenties, they said, Oh, these horses will take care of you. So they just put me on a horse and we went for this wonderful ride, you know, cross country and went into the national park where, um, the parliament, the open air parliament was held in the saga days. And the, the chieftains would, would put up their tents and they would discuss the laws of, of uh, early Iceland. And I knew so many stories from, you know, this place. And the idea of going there on horseback, the way the medieval people would do was, was just so, you know, amazingly meaningful to me. I went back a few more times to ride through the Icelandic countryside to places where you really can't get in, in, you know, on, on roads. And again, it was just this, this wonderful combination of, you know, the animal agreeing to carry me and seeing the world at a slower pace than you would from a car, but also, you know, being a part of the journey, being a part of the travel by, you know, interacting with cooperating with with this animal so i i really just fell in love with the whole concept and i decided at one point that i just had to buy some icelandic horses and bring them home and my husband was very um patient with me and he said well if you do that write a book about it because he knew that was was something i wanted to do and i ended up doing both i i bought the horses in iceland and i brought them home and wrote a book about it and that's a good horse has no color but I've had Icelandic horses ever since then. That was 1997 that I bought my first ones. And I still have my first horse. She's 32 years old. Um, they are extremely smooth gated. That's, that's what their, their real uh, difference is from, from American horses, is that they have one or two extra gates. They have a running walk that is as fast as a canter or as slow hmm. as a walk. And then they have a flying pace, which is uh, like a harness racer, a pace racer. Wow. And that's only used for short distances for, for, for racing. But the tolt, mm -hmm. the running walk, is an extremely comfortable, smooth, 
cross country gate that is just you know terrific for trail riding and that right. that you can do it at many different speeds where a lot of the gated horses only go very slowly uh, these horses are taught to cross country so they're they're really moving along the other things i like wow. about them is their small size they're very personable and they're very shaggy they have lots of hair so they're very cute so they are really a, a wonderful family horse okay well adding a uh, riding an icelandic horse to my long list of things to do so that sounds i want to i want to try that gate out that sounds pretty fantastic well, thank you, Nancy, so much um, for taking the time. I highly recommend her book. And I think uh, that we are all going to hopefully go out on an evening walk today with uh, a little more awareness of the magic around us. So thank you so much, Nancy. Thank you, Katie. Here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing.